We're going to read today from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to pick up where we left off. Last week we left off about lawsuits, how brothers and sisters in the church should not uh, let the, the smallest, uh, tiniest of provocations spill over into big stuff where you're going to court. And it's shameful. Paul is writing in love to the church. And so um, we love our lawyers, but um, some of it is a bit too much. Wouldn't we agree? And we're addressing the problems that divide us. So maybe we don't all agree. That'll be true today, but this is an important word for us today. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we'll read 9 through, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we'll read verses 9 through 30. Don't you know, by the way, that's a phrase he uses, do you not know? He uses it six times in this stretch of scripture. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the king, God's kingdom? Do not be deceived, no sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Verse 12, everything is permissible for me. He's quoting philosophers of his day, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For, for the scripture says the two will become one flesh. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Verse 18 in closing, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who's sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, or you are bought with a price, at a price. So glorify God with your body. In 1981, um, a Harvard a political scientist named Samuel Huntington wrote a book simply called American Politics. And in this book, he said that about every mm, 60 years or so, America goes through what he uh, deemed a moral convulsion. You take the American Revolution in the uh, 1760s and 1770s, um, the Andrew Jackson era that with the Southern backlash that led to the Civil War in 1830s, 1840s, the Progressive Era of the 1890s and early 1900s, to the Civil Rights Movement of the 1960s. There's this moral convulsion. He defines the common denominators of a moral uh, convulsion as a widespread feeling of moral decline, a disdain uh, for leaders and institutions, and a lack of trust in people in power. Huntington says in the work American Politics, talking about moral convulsion, that they're led by young people, by a new generation of people who have moral fervency and zeal, and they take uh, the reins and they make an impact with their idealism and the change that they want to see. And it changes, our history shows, changes the nation's moral topography, but not without conflict and not without great turmoil. Huntington, in his book, written in 1981, Forecast, He said the next moral convulsion that will come to America will be in the year 2020. We probably would agree that we are living in a moral convulsion. But I know there's disagreement around the room, I'm sure, about, uh, you know, are we morally better or are we morally worse? I lead a group of men on Friday. We had a discussion a few weeks ago, not directly about this, but it came up about our world and are we better or worse. And Walter said, hey, we're better. 
And then David rebutted him. We got two Davids, but David rebutted him and said, no, the world is far worse. And we just let them have at it. Made, made it for an interesting Friday morning. But you look at that, and here's my answer, not to be the consummate politician, but they're both right, really. I mean, in some ways, if you look at human rights, if you look at tolerance and inclusion, particularly people from marginalized groups, we would agree that our world is largely better. We've made some great moral strides because people have stepped up for the cause of justice, yes, social justice in our world today. But also, you look, and I mean, look, pick your metric. I'm a preacher, so this will be easy for me, but Look, studies reveal no matter the metric, if it's infidelity, it's on the rise. If it's lying, it's way up. Even animal cruelty is through the roof now. So both points could be argued, but what do you make? What, what do you make by this befuddling conclusion that we're both getting morally better and morally we're far worse off? The answer is found uh, of, of this is moral convulsion is found in the concept of moral relativism. Any philosophers in the room, amateur philosophers or professional, uh, you'll know this concept. And even though we can't articulate its merits, uh, we see it played out in us in our day. You can think about it this way. Moral relativism is essentially uh, an odd mix of Marxist Darwinianism which is survival of the fittest, uh, you know, everybody look out for themselves. There's no, uh, no directive, there's no um, sacred order, there's no design, there's no intent. We're, we're really on our own. That's a Darwinian materialism. Also, a French postmodernism, which is there are no absolutes. There are absolutely no absolutes. French postmodernism postulates to us. And then lastly, something that we're probably maybe not aware of by name, but oh my word, is it affecting our culture uh, today? And it's just this Marxist power analysis. And the Marxist power analysis is the idea that truth itself is a form of power and is used by social institutions and religious groups and other people to hold people back. That truth itself is a form of power and it's used to oppress people. The philosopher, uh, the vintage philosopher with this, who's held in high regard intellectually, is Michel Foucault. And Foucault postulated this in many, many different ways. He uh, incidentally died in 1984 of AIDS that tragically ravaged our uh, nation and our world. His last days, he, was spent, he spent writing treatises, and he also spent in San Francisco bathhouses and hotel rooms. He was writing on the best way to, to commit suicide. And he said it's group orgy sex. And Michel Foucault went through San Francisco very purposefully infecting sexual partners with AIDS. He would, by the way, later write, at the end of his life, he would write that there's no age of consent for sex between adults and children. Here's what you probably don't know about Michel Foucault. In Ivy League schools and out in the Northwest, he's the most popular philosopher. One pastor I know writes about taking his son to college to look at different colleges. And there's some philosophy departments that they have a, a Fouquet quote on every single wall. Gender ideology stuff, gender ideology posters and slogans like men can have periods too and gender is between the ears, not between the legs. I want to say this morning on my little rant that's said in love that our children are being purposefully educated into this worldview. 
we talk as a church about discipleship. In fact, Jesus said that the aim of the church is to make disciples, to go into all the world and to make disciples, teaching them all, listen to me, teaching them all that I have commanded. That's why a preacher can get the green light from Jesus to preach a sermon like this today. Teach all that I've commanded, even stuff about money, sex, and power. But there is a worldview and our children are being targeted. Let me give you a case study in moral relativism of postmodern ethics. If one of my kids, let's pretend they're in their younger years, they came to me and said, hey, dad, I want to do heroin. What would the response be if I was to be a good dad? What should my response be if my kid says, one of them says, hey, I want to do heroin? Wouldn't we all agree, um, even my progressive friends on the left who I love, who, uh, who tout freedom and individuality and to you know, you know, push away from traditional uh, morality, even they, all of us, I think, would join in by saying that heroin is a hard drug and it's wrong for a kid to take. I would also add that it's wrong for an adult to take as well. But listen, what are we doing here? In a, in a, if we swim in a sea of moral relativism, we have to have something. We have to have something beyond ourselves. Here's what I would need in order to be a good dad, in order to discern what is loving, what is harmful, and what could even be hateful. What I would need is knowledge of good and evil. I would need something. I would need a source of that. I would need something outside of me to be able to be a good dad in that situation. John Mark Comer in his book, Live No Lies, says the following. This transcendent source of moral authority is what the West doesn't have. 300 years of the best secular thought has utterly failed to produce a transcendent voice for us, an authority. Leading experts warn that we are heading for a human rights crisis because secularism has no metaphysical grounding. On the external level, we see the cultural wars and the tribal violence. On the internal level, we see an epidemic of anxiety and depression and mental health issues. There's immense pain and suffering in our world today. We are the first society, and I'm not sure if you realize this historically, we're the first society in the history of the world to attempt to live with no sacred order and no transcendent moral authority beyond the self. Comer writes, in a previous era, it was thought fitting to never deny God. In our era, it is thought fitting to never deny self. Rant over for now. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul writes into this world, a world that was overtly sexualized. He, into this world, says, you've made sex common and casual and carefree. Sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds good to think that way. But God's idea, and he created it, he created it. He said it's sacred. It's spiritual. And it ought to be selfless. It needs a spiritual foundation. It needs a sacred dimension. It needs to be done selflessly. Melinda Selms wrote a book called Sexual Authenticity. I want you to see what she wrote. Underneath the pop and fizzle of sexological enthusiasm lies a fundamental despair. Not necessarily about life itself, but about the body. This seems counterintuitive. Surely the sexual revolution is about the celebration of the body over and against the pretense that love ends below the neck. 
Yet beneath all the pageantry of free sex and self-love, there's a primary belief that the body doesn't mean anything. That is insignificant in a literal sense. That you can do anything you like with it. You can pleasure it with a vacuum cleaner or get a drunken stranger in an alley to whip it. Or you can give it away to anyone for any reason. It's just sort of a wet machine, a tool that you can use in exchange for whatever purpose suits your fancy. In order to believe this, you must either accept that your body is not you, but it is just a shell or a juicy robot that the real you, the disembodied ghost controls, or there is over and against no value or dignity. It's just a nice pretense that we make because we're terrified of this senseless and nihilistic universe. Ironically, Christianity, which has always been accused of putting God before man, stands alone amongst a host of modern philosophies declaring that man is a unified, complete being composed of both mind and free will and a body, all of which has dignity and meaning. Into this culture, Paul writes at Corinth, it was casual, it was carefree, it was common. And he says, this gift of sex, by the way, God gives the gifts and Satan distorts the very same gifts. God wants to bring you life and it's the enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Just quoting Jesus here, but man, I see it. Does anybody else see it? That's the in every good gift that God gives. Food is a good gift. It's a good, but when it's distorted, uh, it can become gluttony. Rest is a gift. I'm getting a nap today. Rest is a gift, but it turns into laziness. That's a distortion of, of the gift. On and on it goes, and sexuality is that way. Paul is writing to this over-sexualized culture saying, what you've heard and what you're practicing. And remember, let me give some context here, because if um, anybody thinks I'm being unduly harsh now or in a moment, I want to tell you that the church has not always been a moral beacon of beauty. And we looked in the previous chapter, that 1 Corinthians 5, we're not to be about judging the world. We're to be about loving and discerning truth and confronting brothers and sisters in sin inside the church, especially leaders. And they had a leader that was committing incest, that was sleeping with his uh, stepmom, and they were doing nothing about it. And Paul is writing and saying, sex matters. There's value. Now, popular in the day, it's in the wake of, in the shadows of Socrates, Aristotle, and Plato, particularly Plato. And there's a concept called platonic dualism. And platonic dualism is what Paul is refuting in 1 Corinthians 6. Just a few nerd phrases for you today. Platonic dualism is Plato's thought of the body is temporary, the soul is eternal. And you may go, wait a minute, Robert, isn't that what we preach at Fondren Church? Isn't that what the Bible teaches? The scripture actually teaches that our bodies will be redeemed. The scripture actually teaches, if you've been here, you know 1 Corinthians 6. You heard it a minute ago, for the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. What? Like your body has value. And so Paul refutes the Plutonic dualism with psychosomatic unity. Nerding out just for a moment. Psychosomatic unity, look at the phrases here. From the Greek, he uses the word psycho, the word somo. It means soul. The first means soul. Psycho means soul. We translate more to mind. So it's mind, soul, intention, desire, will. It's the part of you that's a very real part. It's just as real as your body is, but we don't see that. I can't see your intentions. I can question them. You may be questioning mine right now, but that's deep in us. And Paul is saying that, and by the way, this is unique to Christianity. This is one of the many gifts that Christianity uh, brings the world. And some people today are blasting a megaphone saying that Christianity is harmful. Certainly hypocritical forms are, distorted versions are. 
But where Christ goes, where the gospel is preached, there's liberation, there's freedom, there's women's right, children do better, families do better. The Christian sexual ethic, listen, is, it gives a higher view of the body, not a lower view. And can I say to any women in particular that have been messed up by evangelical purity culture, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the message we've given that these urges are bad and that your body is a, a temptation uh, to men, solely a temptation to men. And we, we preach it in our youth groups. Sex is bad, sex is bad, sex is bad. Save it for the one you love. But into this culture, Paul writes to Corinth. He says, using their philosophers, some of you get onto the preacher when I quote someone that you don't like. But you may not give me credit because I may not like him either. But Paul, when he went through Athens, close to Corinth, in Acts chapter 17, it says he knew their poets and philosophers. And here Paul is steeped into the culture of his day. He says, here's what you've been saying. Everything is permissible. Of course, Paul is not saying that. God is not saying that to you. I'm not saying that to you. I would never look at you. No good parent would look at their child and say, everything is permissible. But he says what? Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. This, we would say it something like this. We would say just because it's legal doesn't mean it's moral. Just because the world says it's okay doesn't mean God says it's okay. And then he goes on to say, uh, I will not be mastered by anything. So the truth is, for us, many of us are being mastered by something. Bright people, capable people, educated people, skilled athletic people find their lives on the edge of ruination, small substances, hidden desires. Oftentimes, if not all the time, it's a good gift from God that's been distorted by Satan. The porn addict who stays up late into the night at the glow of fake images with his pants down around his ankles is not free. The man or woman sneaking around town hoping not to get caught going into or out of a hotel room because they're cheating on their spouse is not free. The person who says, this is my identity and it's sexual and you must validate, you must validate me, you must validate me, oh, you must validate me. They're not free. Maybe today, you're not free. And what the gospel does for you and I, I want to testify to it. It gives us freedom. Second Corinthians, I know we're in first, but Second Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 17, we've sung this before here at Bondred Church. Paul declares this, for now, now that the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Can I say today that for some of you, maybe your anger directed at me in this message could be a point where you are not free and God can bring freedom. I will not be mastered by anything. How many of us are mastered by something? The Washington Post, which is not exactly a herald of Jesus-centered content, recently posted this article, this writing called Consensus is Not Enough. Take a look. 
This generation is the most sexually liberated. There's our freedom synonym. But the least sexually satisfied. In our post-sexual revolution culture, there seems to be wide agreement among young adults that sex is good and that the more of it, the better. That assumption includes the idea that we don't need marriage to be tied to a relationship. Our proclivities are personal and not to be judged by others. But the outcome is a world where young people are both liberated and absolutely miserable. Repeating the refrain, this generation is the most sexually liberated and also the least sexually satisfied. You don't want to know the number of young men because they, they got addicted to pornography innocently when they were 10, 11, and 12 years old. And without medication and hope and a miracle, there's no really hope for sustained intimacy in a future marriage relationship. Young ladies, look at me. Get to know who you're about to marry. Get to know who you're about to marry. The people who do that kind of work, physicians, can tell us that there's an inordinate amount of young men who are being young men who are being treated for erectile dysfunction. Could it be the thing that brings us pleasure, that purports to bring us a life of liberation, is actually enslaving us? Paul, in 1 Corinthians 6, I present it to you, he gives them two lies. The first lie is that sex is physical. It's just physical. The second is what you do with your body has no bearing on your soul. And though we're tempted to believe that, to make it casual and common and cheap, something in all of us has a sense that it's sacred, that it's spiritual, and the best kind of offering is not for our consumption, not for the objectifying of others, but for selfless giving in love. When God established the world, it's the world that he created. Some of you hear me talk about this because it's a subject of robust debate among philosophers and theologians and atheists and, and, and pastors and all, but we argue the merits of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And I'm all for a good, uh, robust argument. I love to enter into that, but I think in arguing uh, we miss what Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is about. I tell people all the time that it's not a scientific treatise. God didn't set out to give us Genesis and explain how everything worked. But what's most important is that we know, that we're told that God created. And there's poetry. I'm not saying it's all poetry. Uh, it, when it speaks scientifically, it's scientifically accurate. But it's poetic. And we see the rhythm and cadence of Hebrew poetry. And we see God creating the world and the universe. We see creating the animal kingdom. He creates man. And there's this rhythm that says, most of you know this. You don't even have to be a Christian to be here today and know this. But it says, God created and says, it is good. God created and it is good. God created and it is good except one time. It is not good, repeat it with me if you know it, it is not good for, it is not good for man to be alone. Doesn't mean that everybody needs to be married. We're going to talk about singleness next week from 1 Corinthians 7. But it's interesting that when God, I don't know if you know this in Genesis chapter 2, we miss it a lot, we read the story so fast, but when God created Eve, Adam is like, he says these two words, at last. And let me say this. This is a gift God wants to give everybody for your flourishing, for your good and his glory. It doesn't have to be romantic. There are extra chemicals that fire when it is romantic. But have you ever had a place where you're like, ah, oh, at last. 
At last I made this connection. At last I have this companion. And God gave Eve to Adam not to complete him, but to complement him. All right? So just as Paul wrote to refute Platonic dualism, I am writing, I'm speaking to refute Jerry Maguire. God doesn't give you a human being. If you're sitting next to one, you're married to them, you hope to be married to them, or one day out there, listen to me, don't look for one person. You're setting yourself up for misery to look at someone and say, make me happy. You must complete me. My compliment was here at the 930 service, and I'm so glad that I have her, but she can't complete me, and I can't complete her. But God gives them a gift. And here's, let's don't miss this. They're, they're naked. Another drum roll. Everybody knows this story. They're in the garden, in the cool. They're naked and they're, they're naked and they're unashamed. That had to, just for a second, that had to be a cool moment. There's no kids here, so we can talk. But that had to be a cool moment, right? Like, eh. <laughs> remember, there's no shame. Shame would come soon thereafter. And we hide shame all around this room. But Adam and Eve, back to the good stuff, at last. When I told my parents I was going to marry this beautiful brunette named Susan Mamari, they were like, at last. My friends, I told them, hey, there's going to be a wedding, at last. But she represents one of those at last for me. She's my complement, not my completer. The gospel needs to be deeper in her and the gospel needs to be deeper in me. And it's Jesus who completes us. But there's a moment when they were naked and unashamed and I bet you what was cool they're like hey you're like me but you're not like me you with me can I just say something some of you are scared to giggle God created that God you know he could have done reproduction you ever seen the movie Gremlins Gremlins he could have made reproduction procreation like the Gremlins like you pop a boil or something but like he gives us and look I'm here for it he gives us this good gift of sex in marriage between two opposites to complement each other. And here's what God did in creation. By the way, there's no hatred or intolerance in anything I'm sharing with you right now. No phobia. Jesus taught in Matthew 10, don't fear man. We all struggle with that a little bit, don't we? Don't fear man. Fear him who's able to throw both body and soul in hell. Jesus is like, fear God only. So there's no fear, no hatred, no intolerance when I say this, but I just want to point you back to creation because it's all through scripture and Jesus himself affirmed it. When God created, he said, I'm going to take two opposites and I'm going to pair them together for something good. And by the way, everybody in the room is here today because of that. Not at church, but here today. You live and move and have your being because of this. No matter what you came from, that's just a scientific fact and a scriptural fact. When God created, he takes these pairs. He takes day and night, sun and moon, land and sea, earth and heaven, male and female. And can I just tell you something? The heart of God here, that was his crowning achievement. You matter. You have worth. If you're a woman, you're equal to a man. If you're a man and you're following your sexual impulses and urges, Paul would say there's glory. God has put his glory in you as a man. Don't live as an animal. 
Paul gives two realities after he gives us this important command to flee all sexual what, what is all sexual immorality? Let me, let me be clear. You don't have to believe it. You can be angry about it. God's design from the beginning, and I believe it's still true today, God's design for us is that sex is a gift for marriage between a man and a woman only. And by the way, he writes, he talks about when you have sex with a prostitute, which is the, che- like, can we agree, that's just the cheapest version. I don't care what you're paying for the prostitute. Like that's the, that's the cheapest value to sex. Let me just, let me, I don't even know her name. I don't even know his name. I'm going to pay a little bit of money and I'm going to, I'm going to satisfy my sexual urges and exchange bodily fluids. And I'm going to have a moment because it's like food for the stomach. I'm going to follow my appetite. And Paul is saying, if you do that, even with the prostitute, you're not married to them, but it's like you're attached to them now. Does anything rise up in you to say, what? Science is just catching up with scripture. And science tells us that when you have a sexual partner, you carry that with you. And when you have multiple sexual partners, let God's grace abound in the room. But when you have multiple sexual partners, it puts an imprint on your soul that you are connected to someone. And as much as we try to cheapen it, we know that it's not. And even an atheist, even a skeptic, even one of you that's mad at me right now, you know you know that you can't carry that out. You can't carry it. It's common. Um, it's cheap. It's casual. You can't carry that out because why would you be offended by rape? Why do you join us in the fight against sexual trafficking in Mississippi and other places in the world? Why do you give money? Why do you go if that's the case? And why does sex carry with it shame? A CNN reporter years ago during COVID, everybody was Zooming and he got caught literally with his pants down. He took a leave of absence. I pitied the female reporter when Jeffrey Tubin came back and she had to interview him about what happened. Because sex is sacred and sex is special. And when sin enters in and distorts us, there's shame in it. And we, all of us, are broken. When Paul says to flee, he's using the word scholars believe, though Greek and Hebrew, there's that gap there, but it's, it's the connotations are similar to Joseph and Potiphar's wife when she came on to him. And what did he do? He dropped the garment and he fled. He ran. Here's what he's saying. Flee temptation. Martin Luther put it this way. If your head is made of butter, stay away from the fire. Sexually, all of us are made of butter. And all of us need to be careful. This is a sin that you don't need to flirt with. You don't need to play with it like a pet. You don't need to downgrade it. You need to flee from it. Rebecca McLaughlin, one of the brilliant writers of our day, she wrote this in Confronting Christianity. Jesus' view of sexuality won over the Roman Empire. It changed the moral nature of the West for over 2,000 years. The Christian sex ethic was revolutionary. It introduced the very idea of consent and sex, and it made sex not about self-fulfillment, which always privileges those with more power. It was made to be about the creation of lasting community that reflects God's relationship to us. This is a higher, not a lower view of sex. Modern cultures, sexual logic, that sex, if for self-realization, ultimately depersonalizes and objectifies because it turns sex into a consumer good rather than a means to nurture a bond of covenant. It leads to a fractured community and to the decline of marriage and the family. Sex outside of marriage is ultimately transactional, and so it cannot finally be intimate. Another brilliant writer, Nancy Piercy, wrote a book called Love Thy Body. 
I recommend it to everybody. And here she simply put it this way. What Christians do with their sexuality is one of the most important testimonies that they give to a watching world. It's a word with a lot of baggage. It's a word that we are probably timid to use in mainstream culture. But it's a word I believe that we cannot give up. It's the word holy. And the scripture teaches us, I believe it with all my heart, you will not see God without holiness. Paul gives us in the midst of the two lies that sex is just physical and that what you do with your body has no bearing on your soul. He gives us two realities. The first is the blood of Jesus and the second is the Holy Spirit. He says, and I love this, you once were. You once were were this and by the way he mentions a lot of sins not just one and so church will lose ground we'll lose more ground if we just pick out one of these sins and highlight them but he mentions all of them and he says or many of them and he says you once were this but you've been washed So I say to you what a preacher once said to me when I was young. I loved it. I wrote it down. This gets me. Somebody needs to hear it. Satan knows your name, but he calls you by your sin. Jesus knows your sin, but he calls you by name. You're not your affair, you're not your divorce. You're not your past. You're not your porn problem. You're not your addiction or your compulsion. You're not your victimization. You're not your fornication. You're not your orientation. Our identity is to be found in Jesus Christ. Our liberation is the good news. I want to ask Lauren and the team to make their way up because we have a few moments. And I don't want you to let them be a distraction, but I want you to hear my pastor's heart. I want to close this with seven hopes that I have. Hope number one is this. Into a world where sex is common, casual, and carefree, I pray that we would be testimonies that it's sacred and spiritual and selfless. My second hope is this. We will fight the fight, listen to me, with both conviction and compassion. What's the job of a preacher? To preach love. How many would agree? Yeah, preach love. I'm not, hey, preacher, I'm not coming back if you don't preach love. You're right. I can't think of anything more important than to preach love. Matthew 5, 44, Jesus said, love your, even your enemies. If you're against me today and what I'm preaching, can I say that I still love you? If you walk out, you walk out, and I'll grieve that. But I'll be here if you come back. And I'll be here if you want to talk. I'll field any question that you have. 
So we preach love, but we need to fight and we're in a fight, but we need to fight with conviction. Just as Jesus said, love your enemies, bless those who persecute you and pray for them, Matthew 5. We learn in 2 Corinthians 10, 4, that we're to destroy every stronghold. And can I tell you, there's some really bad ideas. How many of you, I said this at the first, how many of you, 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 you're very keenly aware that the world we're living in today in 2023 is different than the world just a few short years ago. Like vastly different. And there are people perpetuating poisonous division. People with an agenda who are seeking to disciple you. And by that I mean influence your thinking, shape your worldview, guide your decisions. They're desirous and they have to to put their agenda forth. They're gonna wanna undermine the family and silence opposing viewpoints and overhaul language, which I don't have time to learn, and alter what God has put in his creative order. I told two friends what I was gonna preach today and one of them is a pastor and he goes, I don't know if I'd do that if I were you. We need to. Because of the brokenness, because of the sin, because of our children and because of future generations and we need to stand strong on conviction number three becoming a community where men and women honor the sacredness of sex number four husbands and wives are faithful to the covenant of marriage number five singles seek a marriage partner based not on looks or privilege but character Six, where the unmarried, divorced, widowed, or never married, are, and, and they're included and they're as extended family members and close friendships with both sexes, and they're involved in nurturing relationships with our children. Number seven, where people with same-sex attraction feel safe and valued and are given support to live out their calling to celibacy out of love for Christ and submission to the world. Y'all see what you see, but I'll tell you what I see. That last one represents some of the most courageous people in our church family. We are not going to, as long as I'm here, edit God's word to fit the world. And it may to you seem unloving, but it's the most loving thing we can do. child comes to me and says I'm a boy in a girl's body it is love to say you are not in the wrong body God has established truth from the very beginning of his creation and there's confusion and I said this jokingly a few weeks ago but just you, you let this play out you let this play out. And I, I'm telling you, don't be on the wrong side of history in this. And you let this play out. There is a moral bankruptcy and an evil that's running rampant, and it may get worse. But I pray, pray to God that we will live out our convictions. And listen to me, especially young people, it is weird to the world. But I will tell you, 
like any person, any man, I am sexually broken. I must, my head is made of butter. I must flee and I must guard because a whole lot is at stake. But I have been with one woman, one woman. And I want to tell you that it's possible. Wilt Chamberlain said, allegedly slept with 100,000 women in his day. And in his memoir, he said, I'd rather have slept with one woman 100,000 times. Jesus is right. His way is best, even when it doesn't seem so. Let me pray. Father, thanks for this morning. I pray that you'd offer hope. Hope to those who are on the margins. And I pray for transparency. And I pray for, though this was a sermon, a monologue, I pray for dialogue because we need to enter in. We need discipleship because if we're not discipling each other and being discipled by your word, then the world is discipling us. And we need to destroy these strongholds and walk in holiness. Jesus, we pray. Amen. Would you stand and would you sing with us? The altar is open. I will be here. This is a day based on the nature of what we preach that it's highly unlikely that many people will come down front for prayer. Can we just say that? Um, But we're here.